certainly we could say what a blessing it is that again that we can come together in the way that we are. I suppose we all can give thought to those circumstances perhaps around the world where those who would wish to meet, perhaps due to circumstances beyond their control, cannot at least with the kind of serenity and peacefulness that we enjoy. Tonight it certainly has been good already to enjoy these songs together for the next few moments. Perhaps you've been intrigued by at least the title I chose for the lesson tonight, an example of pro-choice in the Bible. I would suggest that as we give some thought to that for the next few moments, we will not only reflect a bit on the exactness of the conversation, which often appears when that word does, but perhaps a larger connection in which the principles are also so readily seen. I'm sure each of us are very well aware of some of the facets that appear on the slide that's now before you. By and large, whenever you and I hear that term, we hear of it in connection to a discussion of abortion. And by that I mean there are those who would label themselves as pro-choice, and there are those that label themselves as pro-life. Everybody wants to be for something. Nobody calls themselves anti-life, and nobody calls themselves, you see, anti in anything related to that discussion. But as you give thought to the consideration of it, we understand well that those who would label themselves as, for instance, pro-choice, would lift high, in their mind at least, the consideration that it's my right and my prerogative to make the choice that I'm now making and that there's nothing evil, nothing wrong, nothing outside the bounds of propriety with respect to it. On the other hand, those that are pro-life would say, now, wait just a moment. There's a larger issue at hand here. There's a matter, you see, beyond your right, there is an actual rightness or wrongness, if you please, connected to this. In the midst of discussions along that line, may I suggest there's quite frankly a larger issue that one must consider, and in part at least, we'll see that appear tonight in our lesson text. You may have noted that Brother Dennis read a moment ago from 1 Kings chapter 21. I would invite you to turn to that chapter. We'll be devoting quite a bit of time to some of the developments found in that place. 1 Kings chapter 21. The next slide, in fact, will present some background to the passage so that when we arrive at it and that which closely surrounds it, we'll perhaps be more ready to look at some of the things to be seen. The chapter begins like this. We are immediately introduced to a gentleman named Naboth. It is rather immediately said that he owned a piece of ground, in fact a vineyard, that was adjacent to the palace. Now, when mention is made, of course, of the one who occupied the palace, that is to say, the one who was the king, his name was Ahab. And so we might immediately digress for a moment and reflect upon who this person Ahab was and what might be the circumstances surrounding what the Old Testament provides us. Ahab was the seventh king of Israel. By this point, you might remember that the kingdom had been split. Originally, there were ten, I'm sorry, twelve tribes, and they were to be a unified whole in the consideration of the following of the will of God. They were together. But you and I remember after the reign of Solomon that there was a division. The kingdom split. Ten of the tribes banded together, and they formed the northern kingdom of Israel. The other two tribes, they too remained loyal to one another and to the nature of the will of God. They bound themselves together 
into the southern kingdom known as Judah. Ahab was the seventh king of that northern kingdom. The one again that consisted of the ten tribes. But you might well notice on that slide that the Old Testament is rather quick to give us a description of this gentleman named Ahab. In fact, you might note his daddy was a man named Omri. And Omri, of course, was the sixth king of Israel. And the Old Testament will say of him in 1 Kings 16.25 that nobody before him had done as badly as he did. Wouldn't you hate to have a recognition such that through the stream of time you'd be known as one of the sorriest kings that ever lived? Well, that's what was said of Omri. Up to his time, he was the worst of the bunch. But five verses later, the same thing is said of his son. That tells me Ahab was worse than his daddy. Ahab was sorrier than his daddy was. In fact, the Old Testament will be quick to say that he did evil above all that were before him. Wouldn't it be awful to be known in the biblical record that way? That no matter how long time shall stand, your name will be synonymous with evil. That your name will be known for just being plain sorry. And yet, that's what both his daddy and he were known for. As you'll notice on that slide, you may also note that the Old Testament is quick to point out what a very poor choice Ahab made when it came time to choose a bride. In fact, if I could just invite you to note the wording in, in chapter 16. The Holy Spirit chose to word it like this. Verse 31 of 1 Kings 16 reads like this. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Don't you find it intriguing the way that the Old Testament phrased that? As if it weren't bad enough, the other choices he had made in life, and the other kinds of things that he had chosen to endorse, he went out and chose to marry the daughter of the king of the Zidonians. Now in other places, you and I are told what that gentleman's name was. His name was Ethbal. And I've asked you to note that on the slide. The name, you see, of Jezebel's father was with Baal. That's what the name means. That's what it connotes. That's what goes along with it. He was with Baal. That was the national religion, you see, where he came from. And that was the national religion that Jezebel was familiar with. And so when Ahab married her, and she became the queen of Israel, if you please... Guess what she introduced into Israel? The national religion of Israel became Baal worship. That's what she endorsed. That's what Ahab did too. That's what they promoted. That's what they advocated. The worship of God was not to be tolerated. So much so that in the opening verses of 1 Kings chapter 19 and 20, you find some things especially stated like this. In fact, look early in chapter 18. I misspoke about the chapter. It's early in chapter 18. Look what was noted in verses 3 and 4. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. Take note. 
she put to death the prophets of God. She had no interest in promoting the worship of the God of heaven. She had no interest in, you see, encouraging that sort of thing. She was a Baal worshiper, and she wanted the kingdom to be like that. And she made it her desire, her effort to rid the kingdom, you see, that was the kingdom of God, of things that would be worshipful of the God of heaven. Returning to that slide, you notice then that the text goes on quickly to bring us to this observation. Now that we see Ahab and Jezebel, the leaders, if you please, of the northern kingdom, now we appreciate the following. Ahab desired very greatly the property that bordered his palace. That property that Naboth owned, that property that Naboth, you see, was such that it was a possession of his. Returning to chapter 21, verse number 2 is the conversation. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it, for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give, it, I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. At this point, we can again easily imagine the conversation. Here was a gentleman, namely the king, and he desired this property very near to his palace. And thus he approached the owner Naboth and said, Look, I would very much like to have the vineyard that is yours, that vineyard that's near to my palace. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a much better vineyard than that one if you'll just sell me that property. Or if you would rather have it, I'll tell you what, I will just simply buy it from you. You name the price. Most individuals, I would think, would be very excited if the king, with all of the access to money and wealth that he had, if you were able to, in fact, appreciate that he wanted something that you had and that he almost was willing to give you a blank check for it. But you and I are quick to notice the next verse. Naboth, verse number 3, said unto Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. Naboth was not willing to sell. He, you see, refused to sell it. And might we take note of the reason that he gave? It's not that he was sentimentally attached to it. It's not that by some means he knew that there was wealth attached to it. It's not that there was anything connected to it whereby it might advantage him in money in the years to come. He said it like this, The Lord won't let me sell it to you. Now you and I will recall back in the earlier books of the Old Testament that that land of promise, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, was such that God deeded it to the people, of course for a time, and that they by families were blessed to be able to appreciate it. But it was not to, you see, leave their family appreciation. In fact, even if times became difficult, and they by some means, for instance, in order to keep themselves out of slavery, they had to sell it. At the year of Jubilee, it would come back to you. So no longer than 50 years, and you would again regain possession of the land, for it was yours. Naboth said to King Ahab, God won't let me sell it. In accordance to the will of the God of heaven, the Lord forbid me that I should sell it. At this point, I think we would be impressed with Naboth. 
regardless what financial considerations there might have been, and regardless what it might have meant for him and his family from a financial standpoint, he was not willing to sell it. Many lessons, I think, might well be appreciated in connection to the mentality of Naboth. He wasn't willing to sell. As you and I turn the slide, though, to the next, to the next consideration, we now begin to ask, how did Ahab react to the refusal? The next verse reads like this, And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. So far, we notice the only description given of Ahab was this. It says he was heavy and displeased. It doesn't mean he was overweight. That's not what the word heavy means in that context. It means his countenance had fallen. He was saddened. He was disheartened. And now the verse ends like this. He laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. You and I might put that in our own language like this. He pouted. You see, he turned his face, if you please, away. That displeasure that had been the part of his lot. It says he laid down on his bed, and it goes on to say he would eat no bread. Even when the servants apparently would bring it, he refused to eat. His countenance had disturbed him so that in this particular selfish allotment, he acted like this. Would you like to have a king that behaved like that? Would you like to have a leader that would behave this way? Would you like to have someone who you would hope would have the countenance and the encouragement and the strength of character to be otherwise? At this point, verse 5 takes us to Jezebel. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? Now, Jezebel, you notice... We now appreciate that upon coming to Naboth, she had become aware of his behavior. Honey, why are you acting this way? Verse number 6 says, He said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. In his refusal to sell, this was the only thing troubling King Ahab, as far as the text will tell us. And yet, verse number 7 says, Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou not govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Jezebel had a plan. She had a scheme. She had a way in which she was going to get what her husband wanted. Now, as you and I give thought to the development so far in the chapter, you and I perhaps can imagine the plot is not going to be in Naboth's best interest. Allow me to read further. Verse number 8, So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people. And set two men, sons of Belial, 
before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he die. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in the city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people, and there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. I think that causes our blood somewhat to boil. To think about the behavior exhibited by Ahab and Jezebel, exhibited by those who ought to have been the godly leaders of the children of Israel. And so you and I perhaps can describe some of those verses in ways like this. Jezebel's scheme went like this. She sent letters, and notice she put her husband's seal of kingly approval upon it, and to the elders and the nobles of the city, the community in which Naboth lived. You proclaim a fast, and as a part of that, you elevate and you respect Naboth. But then, let there be two witnesses also that will appear and make a public declaration that this man is guilty of blasphemy. Now, you and I will recall that blasphemy was a crime punishable by death. God had said that in Leviticus 24. You might take note, two witnesses required. Even Jezebel knew enough to, to, bring, to make sure that was true. But they were false witnesses. She had these two come in who, with a bit of consideration would make the claim that Naboth was guilty of blasphemy. At that point, you notice in verse number 13 and 14, that's exactly what they did. Naboth was taken out on the charge of blasphemy and put to death by stoning. The next verse then says, verse 14, Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. We have done what you requested. We've done what you urged. At this point, maybe a few observations. First of all, at the bottom of that slide, Ahab and Jezebel acted with absolutely no concern for the well-being of Naboth. That was completely beside the point. What Ahab wanted was that vineyard. And Jezebel was intent to make sure that that became their possession. What Naboth thought about it, what reasonings that he had given, and what other means whereby even illness directed to him was of no concern whatsoever. But maybe observation number two, they acted with nothing but selfish motives. They acted, you see, with the pureness of recognition of what their preference was. Nothing else mattered. Nothing else made any difference. Observation number three. These two didn't flinch a moment at murder. Murder meant nothing to them. We've already noted back in chapter 18, they had been guilty of putting God's prophets to death already. Surely Naboth was not going to add a moment of sleepless night to them. 
Now those three observations seem evident based on the text, based on the description given of them already. However, the saga continues. And so let's turn our slide and look at a section I've entitled Elijah, Ahab, and Jezebel. What happened after Naboth was put to death? May I continue reading? Beginning in verse number 15, the text goes on to say, And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. I suspect that perhaps with a bit of relief, maybe a bit of excitement, perhaps at least with a bit of recognition of being able to provide her husband what he wanted. She was able to bring him the news. Guess what? The vineyard you wanted is now yours. Go take it. For the man that wouldn't sell it to you is dead. The next verse. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. There appears to have been no delay. As soon as he heard the news from his wife, he went to take possession of the field. I'm sorry, of the vineyard. To take possession of that which he had wanted, but which Naboth would not sell. And now verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Isn't it interesting and also delightful how that the observation is made that here Jezebel, had plotted in such a way to kill an innocent man. And now her husband, giving no second thought to the means whereby Naboth had been killed, he goes to take possession of it, maybe with a bit of excitement, maybe with a bit of interest. But all the while, God knew what had taken place. God was well aware of it. And we now find that in verse number 17 that the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And this is what God says. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. God even tells Elijah exactly where Ahab is. He is in that vineyard that was Naboth's. God knew where He was. Isn't that a reminder? God knows where all of us are. He knows where we've been. He knows what we're doing. He knows where we're thinking about, and He knows what our intents are. God knows. It is still true that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3 The Hebrew writer would say it like this in Hebrews 4 verse 13 as he spoke again about the nature of that which God knows. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. At this point, God again reminds or in fact instructs Elijah, go and talk to Ahab and let me tell you where he is. Let's see what he had to say to him. Verse number 19. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed, and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. 
the message which God through Elijah brought to Ahab was a very strong message, wasn't it? You'll notice he directly accused him in a very rhetorical way with this question, Hast thou killed and taken possession? Now, although we are well aware of the circumstances surrounding Jezebel's plot, this lays it also at the feet of Ahab. He knew what was going on. He was aware of it. And God says, have you killed and taken possession? And now, before even any more information is shared, he says, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, they're going to lick your blood too, Ahab. Death is going to be the lot. The end of life is going to be a judgment brought for that which has taken place. And now in verse number 20, Ahab said unto Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and will take away thy posterity. And we'll cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall. And now in verse number 22, this description is given. And we'll make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Now on that slide, I've tried to summarize a few of the things that you and I have just noted in the reading. But when Elijah appeared before the king, I hope that each of us can appreciate the strength of the language. Many, of course, would be rather fearful to talk to a king like this. But Ahab didn't think twice because, remember, he was speaking the words of the Lord. God had these words, and Ahab was to appreciate them. Ahab, you have wrought evil. And in so doing, the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, they're going to lick yours too. And with regard to your wife Jezebel, verse number 23, put it like this. It's not merely a leaking of the blood. The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. These two wicked leaders, if you please, oh, what a very distasteful end to their life is here described. At this point, some additional observations at the bottom of this slide. First of all, we might ask, did it come to pass? Was Elijah true in what he affirmed? Did Naboth, or rather, did, he, did Ahab die in such a way that dogs licked his blood? He did. In fact, one doesn't have to read and, but only into the next chapter to read about it. That's how soon it was going to happen. And as far as his wife Jezebel, what about her? It would take several more chapters. But when we arrive at 2 Kings 9, we find that exactly as that which was described, it did take place. I would invite each of us to at least remember there are many ways to die. You could die in such a way that perhaps at sea, well, dogs wouldn't be able maybe to lick your blood or eat your carcass there. Or maybe in some other way, let's face it, Ahab was a king. One might have thought that a king would die in such a way that something like this could not have happened. Aren't you and I impressed 
God's Word's always true. It is invariably true. And it was true in regard to Ahab and Jezebel. As far as those observations at the bottom of the slide, you'll notice that God's anger, verse number 22, had been provoked. What Ahab and Jezebel had done had provoked God to anger. The death of Naboth, maybe we can appreciate murder is sinful. The taking of life is sinful. Inasmuch as the taking of human life is thus described in the Word of God in places like this, Genesis 9 verse 6, early in the Word of God, in that instance, right after the days of Noah, after the days of the flood, God made a decree that him that taketh the life of man, that person's life shall also be taken. Now, many, I suppose, would begin to think that somehow the regarding of life is a much more recent development in the human family, but that isn't so. God instilled that in the divine framework of things from virtually the beginning. Do you recall the sentence brought upon Cain when he killed his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4? The sentence that was brought there about the nature that even Cain felt as if folks were going to take his life. They'll kill me for this. Well, you'll notice that God simply appreciated He would be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. It is very important to have a proper respect for the nature of life, human life, and understand that to take it in ways unauthorized by God is sinful. The next observation will be this. Life in the womb of a woman is still human life. What else would it be? A woman doesn't give birth to an animal. She doesn't give birth to some other creature that's animal-like. She gives birth to a human being. I think it's rather fascinating the way that Jeremiah 1 verse 5 had written that. God told Jeremiah, I knew thee when thou wast in thy mother's womb. God knew Jeremiah before his mother had birthed him. God knew that he was to be a prophet. He had a work for that person to do. Life was that valuable. Life was that appreciative. And it was so because of God's decree. But even besides that point, isn't it fascinating to recall the words of Luke 141 as we journey into the New Testament? There you remember the scene Well, Mary came to Elizabeth, and when she did, the babe in Elizabeth's womb leaped. Notice that which was in her womb was called a babe. Now that was going to be John the Baptist, but that was a description of him before he was born. And yet one chapter later, in Luke chapter 2, we read about that beautiful scene wherein Joseph and Mary had gone, of course, to Bethlehem, and she was near to be delivered of her child. And yet in verses 11 to 14, in that particular chapter, it says that the babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Same Greek word described John before he was born to Jesus after he was born. Same word. Now, sometimes today there are those who might wish to refer to that in the womb as a fetus, as if it's just a blob of tissue. But the Bible doesn't uphold it in that light. It is a creature created in the image of God. It is a human being 
with the power and majesty of life. It's an immortal soul. A spirit, you see, bequeathed that way by the very power of God. Aren't we told in Zechariah 12, verse 1, that it's God that forms the spirit of man within him? At this point, one final observation, how special then is human life? Oh, so special. Because we, you see, are made in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. We're made in the likeness of God, Genesis 5, verse 1. It is such that we, you see, bear the earmarks of immortality. No wonder in that light. Two more observations. Observation number seven takes us back to the scene of Naboth. That which had been highlighted concerning his death was such that there was a measure of innocency highlighted. After all, here was Jezebel and Ahab who had taken life just for the sole purpose of pursuing their preference, their interest, that which they wanted. And God would not have it. He wouldn't tolerate that. Perhaps an easy implication, though, of it would be the reminder, what is more innocent than a baby? I say that in part because look at the way the prophet Amos described it. In Amos chapter 1, verse number 13, we have a record here directly of what sounds very reminiscent of the modern-day practice of abortion. Amos chapter 1, verse number 13. Now, in that particular chapter, you might remember a number of the things that were highlighted were descriptives of judgments on various nations for the things that had, in fact, taken place among them. That particular verse reads like this. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now, before I finish reading the verse, may I say that the children of Ammon had come under the judgment of the God of heaven for various practices of which they were guilty. And this one is mentioned. Because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So these Ammonite peoples had ripped open pregnant women destroying the seed in them, destroying again the babies that were there. And in so doing, God says, I will not turn away my judgment on these people for this. The strength of it goes into the next verse. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces thereof with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith the Lord. The taking of innocent life. I might say we know that babies are innocent. Despite the claims of some throughout the ages that children are somehow born with sin, that just isn't true. The Word of God reminds us that didn't Jesus say it like this? Suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. They're nearer to heaven than we are, innocent and pure. They appreciate in so many ways the naturalness and the perfection of God's creation. Jesus said that in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, and Matthew 19, verse 14. I would say, though, that one more Old Testament passage that rings with such sweetness in light of this is the text in Ezekiel 28. 
In Ezekiel 28, 15, the God of heaven had something to say about a king, the king of Tyre. And the language read like this, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day thou wast created until iniquity was found in thee. Until the king of Tyre chose to sin, he was perfect, sinless. May we say, babies are not born in sin. They aren't born with somehow the stain of contamination from generations past. They are born innocent and sinless and pure. And how wonderful it is. Until, of course, they'll reach some point in life. Hard to say exactly when that is. Maybe age 9, 10, 11, 12, perhaps somewhere along in there. When they know wrong from right and choose to do what's wrong, then they become guilty of sin but not before then. This evening in the lesson we, of course, so far have noted so many instances in which we see a powerful parallel between behavior in the Old Testament and at least the thinking process of some today. And so, what about this pro-choice idea? What does it mean to be pro-choice? In the final analysis, it means to make choices consistent with one's preferences despite what any sense of morality might be, what any sense of ill-advisedness upon others may occur, regardless what the consequences for others might be. I'm going to choose what I want and what I prefer, and that's what it means to be pro-choice. And surely in regard, you see, to abortion... We understand what it means, but so much more in many ways and mentality lies behind it. It might be interesting to close that slide by noting we've already seen what God's judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel were. They clearly were pro-choice. And in light of it, let's conclude our lesson like this. One had better think very carefully. Before one elevates one's own personal interests, one's own personal preferences or desires above the well-being, and the life of others. Even in the New Testament, that kind of thing brings to text like to, to mind texts like these. Matthew 7, verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. And as the Lord made that assertion and that element in teaching, maybe it reminds us, may we never forget what happened to Naboth, and God's judgment on Ahab and Jezebel because of it. He didn't look very kindly nor unfavorably on some of the things that they had made their choices concerning. Maybe it's in all that light we'll close our lesson like this. Even each of us realize we make choices. We make choices every day. And some of the grandest of those choices are of the major viewpoints of the life that we have. How do we look upon life? How do we look upon our standing before God, the characteristics of others, and the nature of that which is presented in terms of what life is? All of that, if you see, will ultimately have a great bearing upon the outlook we have to not only politics, but almost every other avenue of life. Tonight, we've seen what happened in that Old Testament setting. It is a riveting text in many ways. It's a passage that rings with God's verdict of judgment. As you and I think about the day of judgment, 
We know His judgment, of course, will appear on one and all that day. Where shall we stand? What shall our answer be? Tonight, as you and I analyze our life and give thought to our standing in the way before God is all well with our soul, are we able to rest peacefully tonight knowing whatever shall befall us that we are in the safe-keeping hands of Jesus the Christ? Tonight, if you and I, upon recognition of where we stand, need to make a change, why don't you do it? May we each do it with haste and do it with love for what Jesus did for us at Calvary. He died that you and I might live. He died we might live forever in a blissful place called heaven. The plan of salvation is this. Believe upon the Lord. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. And if we could in some way assist you in that way tonight, what a joyous evening it'd be. If you have known that way of righteousness and holiness, but maybe over the course of time you've become influenced by others who would have you think of things which are not in keeping with the Word of God. Tonight you can make a change. You can come back to your first love and you can know again the kind of peaceful harmony with the Lord that once was yours. Tonight, if we could be of some help in that way, if you'd like to repent of those sins and confess them, we'd be delighted to assist you in that too. And we'd be happy to help in any of these ways while together we stand and while we sing.